The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. For our study this morning, I want us to look at what Enoch has to say about the second coming. That's right, I said Enoch, okay? Now, the subject of the last days and the Lord's return are being talked about a lot today in our society that we live in, actually in the world in which we live. And, and the reason for that is that most people see us as living in the last days, okay? You talk to almost any Christian, don't even have to be Christian, they're going to say, yes, we are, we are living in the last days, <clears throat> And one particular theory that's been going around within churchianity is that COVID-19, the vaccine, is the mark of the beast. Have you heard that? Anybody heard? No one's heard that? Come on, you're not paying attention. Hang on a second. They're saying that the vaccine is a sign of the end times, and it's a symbol of the alignment with the Antichrist, okay? Okay. Is COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? Now, <clears throat> here's, here's what's interesting, people. The idea that something going on in our culture is the mark of the beast is nothing new, okay? In American history, the idea that something was the mark of the beast can be traced at least back to the American Revolution. The Puritans believed that the Stamp Act welcomed the mark of the beast as the stamp was required on all legal documents and was an extension of the British Empire, which they believed to be demonic, if not evil. Okay, Early Americans have also rejected the mark of the beast. They are connected the mark of the beast with the papacy. Okay, oh, that's the Pope. He's the, you know, they connected it with Freemasonry and various political endeavors. At one time, Social Security numbers... And Social Security cards were looked at with suspicion, okay? Because they were a mandatory numeric identification system. Additionally, some believed that Social Security would lead to reliance on the government, (laughs) which would reduce rights over time, paving the way for the Antichrist. Some opposition to Social Security numbers on the basis that they're the mark of the beast continues today. I mean, some people refuse that, all right? How about when barcodes come out? Any of you remember that? I can remember so clearly. Oh, everybody, all Christians, it's the mark of the beast. It's the mark. And I'm like, we're in trouble then because, you know, everything you buy at the store has got a barcode and you got to scan it, you know. So, but boy, they just, they thought this was, this was worrisome because, you know, they said, well, you can't buy or sell without it. This is definitely the mark of the beast. And many believe that the number of the beast, 666, was present on all the barcodes. All right. That's kind of been debunked, but... After barcodes, it was computers. Computers began to look, you know, suspicious. They, the computers are the mark of the beast. And several books came out. Um, one of them called Computers and the Beast of Revelation. 19, it came out in 1986. And another one called Antichrist, Computers, and You. High Technology and the Beast, 1987. Another one, Racing Toward the Mark of the Beast, Your Money, Computers, and the End of the World, 1994. 
They all pointed that, you know, people were saying computers and this technology, this, you know, the whole idea of cashless society, this is a red flag, this is going to be the mark of the beast. More recently, in 2014, televangelist Pat Robertson suggested that all electronic financial transactions would be the mark of the beast. And he had special emphasis on computers. This was a sign of the coming of the beast. Uh, he had been saying for years that credit cards were the mark of the beast. So it's within this context that the fear around the COVID-19 vaccine being the mark of the beast emerged. The vaccine, some Christians argued, would limit their ability to buy or sell because of requirements placed on business. Now, this has turned out to be true, okay, because in New York City, they're pushing in New York City now, if you're five years old, you have to have a vaccine card to get in a restaurant and eat. In a lot of places, you have to show your vaccine card or you can't come in. And so you can even, I mean, I can even understand that. You know, you're seeing all this stuff. Okay, maybe this is something to this, you know. Other Christians have become fearful that the vaccine would implant a microchip or a quantum dot tattoo within their, you know, without their knowledge. And this is going to be the mark of the beast. So people are freaking out over this. Do I, do I not, you know. You know, it could be tempting to ignore all this fringe stuff you know, as just craziness. But currently, among American Christians, the belief that we are in the end times is anything but fringe. A survey conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute in March of 2021 asked religious and non-religious Americans to what extent they agreed with the following phrase. The chaos in America today is evidence that we are living in what the Bible calls the end times. Have you heard that from anybody? Every time something happens, they go, oh, sign of the times, sign of the times. I'm like, where's that in Matthew 24? You know, I I haven't seen that sign of the times. But they said this, 64% of black Protestants, 61% of white evangelical Protestants. I'm not sure why the whites are evangelical and the blacks are not. I'm just reading the survey, okay? 61% of Hispanic Protestants all agreed with this statement that they were living in the last days. Here's the, here's the sad thing, people. All this nonsense could be avoided if people just understood the Scriptures, okay? And one of the things that I think American church is really ignorant about is the subject of hermeneutics, okay? The hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation, and most people don't know that. They think you just read the Bible, and whatever you feel like it means, that's what it means that day. You know, but there's a science to interpreting things, and there are laws to governing any written document and interpreting it, and that's important to understand. I want you to interpret this statement for me. It is my personal opinion that we are living in the last days. I'm serious. I really believe we're living in the last days. But in order to understand what I'm talking about, you can't assume you know what I mean. You need to ask me some questions here. What kind of question would you ask if I made this statement? Thank you. The last days of what? You know, we're not conditioned to do that. This has to happen every time we hear a proposition. You know, we have to start thinking when, why, who, what. You know, we're just subject to believing what people say and we don't evaluate things. I don't think we need to be critical people, but we need to be critical thinkers, okay? When I say it's my personal opinion we're living in the last days, I'm not talking about the biblical last days. 
the biblical last days were the, the last days of the Mosaic economy. They were the last days of national Israel. We talked about that last week. They were the last days of the Old Covenant. So we have to learn to ask questions. Last days of what? Most people read that in the Bible and they think it means the last days of the world. Because some translations have the word world. They just think the whole world's going to end. We're in the last days. The Bible doesn't talk about the end of the world. So what do you think I mean by last days? We're living in the last days of what? I mean, you'd be guessing to try to guess what I'm talking about, right? I could be talking about a whole lot of different things, okay? But in this particular instance, I think we're living in the last days of the Biden administration. (laughs) Now listen, here's a point that we have to understand here about last days. The last days of something would have to be fewer in number than the total days that the thing existed. Do you agree? Now, if if Biden is going to do his four years, or maybe eight years, we couldn't be living in the last days, could we? I mean, so if I'm saying we're living in the last days, then I think that this administration is going to come. I mean, the approval rating has never been lower. I mean, Kamala, hers is almost in single digits now, okay? But Biden's continues to drop. And there's talk of, what do we got to do? What do we do here? How do we do? So I, I really think we're think we're in the last days all right but that's okay i just that's an illustration so you'll think okay (laughs) just try to get you to think and ask questions when someone says something like that but we're not prone to do that you know there's a lot of christian buzz phrases that people use you know have you ever heard laid at the foot of the cross okay what does that mean ask somebody that one time you know ask people when they say something like that ask them what they mean and watch the look on their face like I don't know what I mean. It's just a Christian buzz phrase. We use it, you know. But we have to understand these things because we can't do something if we don't even know what it means. But we're not prone to ask questions like we should. All right, we looked last week at what Barnabas, the writer of Hebrews, I believe is the writer of Hebrews, had to say about the second coming. And we saw that in Barnabas's eyes it was very, very near. He said, in a very, very little while he that shall come will come and will not tarry. So he believed it was very close. I also said that Yeshua, all the biblical writers, believed the second coming was something that was soon to them in the first century. Now, for our time this morning, I want to look at what the book of Enoch has to say about the second coming. The book of Enoch says this, And behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know of a book of the Bible called Enoch. Did you not know that was in there? See, if you read through the Bible every year, you'd know that it's not in there, okay? You can probably get some Christians on this, you know. And you'd be right, there is no book, okay? But this verse is quoted in our Bible. So that's why I said this verse, verse 9, we know this verse is Scripture. Anybody know where this is quoted? What? Jude what? Okay, Jude, that's pretty close. Jude's a small book, okay? (laughs) So that's pretty close. (laughs) Jude 14 and 15, Jude says this. It was about these things that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all ungodly of the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so that last part there of uh, verse 14 and 15 is right from Enoch. That's first Enoch 9. All right. Now, what's interesting here is that Jude's quotation from Enoch was the chief reason for the book of Jude's rejection from the canon of the Bible for a number of years. Because he quoted Enoch, they, they didn't want Jude to be part of the canon. However, by the 4th century A.D., Jude's letter had been fully accepted by the entire church. Now, who is this Enoch that Jude quotes here? That's one of the questions we should ask when we read stuff like this. Okay, you find, okay, where's this coming from? If you got a good Bible and have some footnotes or something, you say, all right, this is from Enoch. Why would he quote Enoch? And who is Enoch? Well, the ancient patriarch Enoch, I think, is one of the most interesting, one of the most mysterious characters in all the Bible. We read this about him in Genesis 5.19. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So the Enoch that Jude quotes here is the son of Jared, and this is talking before the flood, and he's also the father, he's the son of Jared, and he's the father of Methuselah. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. You know, most of us don't think about having kids at 65, but uh, in this day, they were a lot younger at that age than we are, okay? Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now, notice that verse 22 says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Now, it's like after this, after he fathered Methuselah, then he really began to walk with God. And this turn in his life was a result of faith because Faith always requires a word from God. That's another thing so misused today. Just have faith. Have faith in what? God has to say something for you to believe to have faith in it. You can't trust God for things He never promised you. That's presumption. All right? Faith has a word that rests upon. All right? This confirms the idea that Enoch was given some kind of revelation of a coming judgment, and this literally changed his life. Now, the word Methuselah comes from muth, which is a root meaning death, and shalach, which means to bring or to send forth. So the name Methuselah means his death shall bring. Okay? All Hebrew words have names have meaning. They're not like ours. They're just not, you know, Bob or Joe or whatever. They have a significance to them. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Now, Here's the interesting thing. Apparently, Enoch received the prophecy of the great flood. And he was told that as long as his son was alive, Methuselah was alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. The year that Methuselah died, the flood came. Interesting. Yeah, what a coincidence. The Word of God is a fascinating thing, people. Enoch walked with God. This is a very significant phrase. This phrase is also used of Noah in chapter 6. This phrase only occurs three times in the Tanakh. Not in the New Testament. When God walks with men, it's a really 
rare thing. It's a really significant thing. The first occasion of this was in Genesis 3. It says Yahweh walking in the garden. Who is he walking with in the garden? Well, Adam is in that garden. And God is walking with Adam in the garden temple. Walking with God depicts a, a divine encounter, a direct divine relationship. Enoch had a holy intimacy with the Creator that separated him, separated him from the world around him. He walked with God. Now, Enoch was a contemporary of Adam for a little over 300 years. Now, can you imagine their conversations? I mean, how would you like to sit down and talk with Adam? You know? I mean, Adam could have told Enoch about the Garden of Eden, how amazing it was, and how stupid he was to sin and get kicked out of there. You know, he could have warned him of the dangers of sin, told him what was going on there. But he, talked, he could talk to him about the fellowship he had with Yahweh. He could talk to him about the divine counsel. Share all these 300 years to talk about spiritual things. Maybe Adam's story had a big influence on Enoch. Adam was dead and Enoch was gone before Noah, the only other man who was said to have walked with God. Now, it says... He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, to understand the significance of this phrase, you really have to see that in chapter 5, from verse 1 down to 21, at least eight times you read these words, and he died. Okay? All the days of Adam lived 930 years, and he died. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912, and he died. Thus, all the days of Kenan, 910, and he died. All the days of Jared, 962, and he died. But when you look at verse 24, it doesn't say that he died. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. What? For God took him. So it appears that Enoch didn't die. You think it's safe to assume that from that? That he didn't die? Well, we have direct scripture that tells us that he didn't die, because if we go to Hebrews 11.5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Okay? So he didn't die. So Genesis and Hebrews both say that he didn't die, but that God had taken him. Taken up here is the word metatithemi, which literally means to put in another place. Here, the passive sense means to be taken or transferred. Now, in the figurative sense, methatithemi means to affect a change in state or condition, and so to alter something. Why was he taken up? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it was because he pleased God. Enoch, Noah, and Yeshua are the only men in scriptures that the scripture directly says they please God. What was pleasing to God about Enoch? Why did he please God? Anybody know? I think the next verse in Hebrews tells us. He pleased God. Then the very next verse says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So guess what? You think he had faith? Obviously, he had faith because he pleased God. All right? Now, the word please here is the Greek word, you are esteo, and it means to gratify completely, to please. This word's only used three times in the New Testament. Twice here in Hebrews 11, and then once in 13. So we are told that Enoch pleased Yahweh, and then we are told faith pleases Yahweh, so we know, okay, he must have been a man of faith. Then in chapter 13, verse 16, he says, 
Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The only time this is used, three times. So I think we can take from this that, you know, doing good, sharing, and being people of faith is something that pleases God. Because Enoch pleased God. So when we minister to somebody who's in need, we are literally a priest offering up sacrifices to Yahweh. So I would say that Enoch was a man of faith who ministered to those in need, and thus he was pleasing to God. And he was so pleasing to God that God took him. Okay? God took him. Think about this. Where did he take him? If he took him, can we agree he had to go somewhere? He didn't die. He was gone, though, because he took him. He's not there anymore. Where did he go? Well, let's think about this. If you had someone that, man, you just love fellowship with, okay? And so you take them because you love their fellowship. They were pleasing to you. Where would you take them? You'd take them where you were, right? Wouldn't you want to be with them? Right? I mean, that would make sense to me. Well, did Yahweh say to him, you are so pleasing to me. I love the fellowship so much, I'm going to send you to Sheol. Why, what's the problem with going to Sheol? He had to die first, right? He didn't die, so he's not going to Sheol, all right? So where would you take them? Well, you'd take them to be with you. I mean, to me, that just, I don't know, what else makes sense? I'm God, I'm enjoying this man so much that I just took him somewhere, get him out of my sight. No. What are the options? Where could he take them? Why take them to a place or a realm if not to be with you? Now, that being said, most people would say that God could not have taken him to heaven. Right? And I say, really? Why not? Well, many would use this as a proof text. John 3.13 No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is a favorite preterist verse to say that, you know, no one goes to heaven before the second coming of Christ. So, if no one has ascended to heaven, then Enoch could not have gone to heaven. But let me ask you this. Did Enoch die? The Scripture says he didn't die, right? We already looked at that, right? By faith, he was taken up that he should not see death. But earlier in this book, the writer of Hebrews says this, it's appointed for man to die. Is this a contradiction? See, the writer of Hebrews says it's appointed for men to die. In other words, people, men, die. All men, every man dies. One out of one dies. Okay? But in chapter 11, it says Enoch didn't die. What do we do with that? Here's what I do with it. I think Enoch is an exception to the rule that all men die. Because he didn't die. Can God make exceptions? What gives him the right to make exceptions? (laughs) He's God, right? So he can make those exceptions, all right? Yes, he can do that. It's not violating anything. That's generally what happens. It's appointed for men to die. But guess what? I'm really having a good time with this guy. Come on. 
I want you to come be with me. Let's look at John 3. No one descended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, I don't think that I used to, but I don't anymore, think that Yeshua is saying no one is in heaven yet. Because I think Enoch is there. (laughs) Okay? Let's look at this verse in context. What's happening in John chapter 3? Well, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, is discussing with Yahweh how a man to be born again. You know, Lord tells him, you've got to be born again. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? You know, and they get in this discussion. Well, let's pick it up in verse 9. It says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I mean, it doesn't make, you know, he says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking what? Physical. Do I got to get back in my mother's? I mean, come on, Nicodemus. How dumb are you? Okay. I mean, really. But so many people are hung up on the physical, they can't get beyond it, all right? Yeshua answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? In other words, hey, guy, you should know some of this stuff, okay? You're a teacher in Israel. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, what's going on here? They're talking about the knowledge of God, and Yeshua is saying that nobody, that the knowledge of God is not attained by man going up to heaven to get it. No one has ascended to heaven. But he whose essential nature is heaven has, by taking human flesh, descended as the Son of God to disclose the Father. The implication is that no one has both ascended to heaven to receive divine revelation and then descended to earth to give that account of that revelation. Yeshua has come from heaven to give us that information. Now, the background of Yeshua's saying here is found in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11 and 12. For this commandment that I commanded you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it down to us, that we may hear it and do it? So the context is talking about going to heaven to receive divine knowledge and bringing that back down. No one needs to do this, he says, because Yahweh has revealed himself through his prophets and especially in the last days through his son. All right? So no one has ascended. No one has ascended to heaven and returned, so no one is qualified to speak the way Yeshua is qualified to speak. This doesn't mean no one's ever gone to heaven. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. No one's ever gone there. Now, let me just reiterate this. We talked about this last week. As a general rule, Scripture teaches people did not go to heaven until the resurrection of the dead in AD 70. Okay? Christ ties the resurrection of the dead in with the age to come. That's when the resurrection happens. Eternal life was also a condition of the age to come. We looked at this many times. Both Mark and Luke record Christ's words in the age to come, eternal life. So the age to come was consummated at the parousia. So full and complete redemption came only at the second coming. That's important for us to understand that, okay? The Bible clearly teaches that. All right, until the Lord returned from heaven, and it's a picture of the high priest went into the temple 
When he came out, men received redemption. When Christ came out in the second coming, that's when the resurrection took place. That's when the judgment took place. That's when the second coming took place. Until then, people didn't go to heaven. They were in Sheol, okay? And they waited the resurrection of the dead. Now, someone might throw in, well, what about uh, 2 Corinthians 5.8? Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, people take this verse and say, so as soon as you die, you're with the Lord. Okay? I would agree with you now, but not when Paul said it. You say, then why did Paul say it if, it's, if it wasn't true of them? Doesn't this mean that if Paul were to die, he'd be with Christ? Maybe. There's some argument there that people say the transition saints, you know, some of the martyrs, went to heaven. But as we said, until the second coming... Basically, men didn't go into the presence of God. I think what we see here is a prolipsis. You follow me on that? We've talked about this before. A prolipsis is the representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished. So in other words, he's talking about something that hasn't really happened yet, but it's going to, and so he talks about it as if it's going to happen. We see a prolipsis in Yeshua's words in Mark 7. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now think about that. Think about what Christ is saying here and think about the people he's saying it to. This is absolutely radical. Why? What makes this statement radical? Could the Jews eat shellfish? Why? It would defile them, right? Okay, so they they had dietary regulations. You can't buy, you can't even eat with people who eat that stuff. Okay? And then Lord says to them, there's nothing outside a person that by going in them can defile them. He's like, what? Yeshua seems to be setting aside the dietary laws. But how could he be with what he says in Matthew 5.17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Part of the law is the dietary restrictions. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay? Nothing. So when Yeshua spoke these words in Mark 7, heaven and earth didn't pass away yet. They hadn't gone to the cross yet. This poses a dilemma, okay? Absent from the body, present with the Lord, nothing outside a person. I see these both as a prolepsis. And many see Yeshua's statement in Mark 7 as a prolepsis. That makes sense. Well, Yeshua was teaching that the law was beginning to fade. The process was so sure that he spoke spoke of it as if it had already happened. Okay. So redemption, eternal life, came at the parousia. Prior to the parousia, men waited in Sheol for the resurrection. But I believe in the case of Enoch that Yahweh made an exception. He pleased Yahweh so much that he took him somewhere. And I can only guess he took him to be in the eternal realm. Now listen, listen to me carefully. If you don't buy this, that's okay, because I'm not selling it. It's just my opinion, okay? But if you have another place that you think he took him, I'd like to know about it. 
You know, I because I don't know. There's not a whole lot of options to me here. Enoch walked with God. Enoch was pleasing to God. Now, the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis 5.24, uses the verb yoresteo and translates it, Enoch was well-pleasing with God. The Hebrew says he walked with God. Greek says he was well-pleasing in God. This is the same word the writer of Hebrews used. So they're both using the same Greek word, saying he pleased God. Enoch walked with God. Enoch pleased God. Now think about this for a moment here. Yeshua, who was the sinless, spotless, undefiled, separate from sinners, Son of God, said this of Himself, And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do those things that are pleasing to Him. So that's, we understand that, right? That's Yeshua. He's the Son of God. He always does, he always does what pleases the Father. Enoch walked with God. He pleased God. That's incredible that the Holy Spirit says Enoch pleased God like Yeshua pleased God. He walked with God for 300 years. Now let me ask you, believer, let's get personal. How about you? Are you walking with Yahweh? Now when I say that, I'm not asking, are you saved? I'm asking if you're walking with Yahweh day in and day out. Walking with Him. Well, how do you know if you're walking with Him? How would you even begin to do Well, it would take spending time with prayer in prayer, right? Prayer is talking to God, okay? Sometimes when you pray, listen to your prayer and see if you sound like you're talking to somebody or if you're, you know, <laughs> it's community. You're just talking to God. That's what prayer is. And then we read the Bible so God can talk to us. And it's spending time with God. And then it's letting that time that you spend with God affect the whole rest of your day so your day is conducted in a way that you are a representative of God. What, what evidence would there be that someone is walking with God? I, I think there should be some evidence. I think if someone's really walking with God, it's going to be visible. Let me say, I think one thing would be gratitude. Now, how can you walk in fellowship with God and not just be thankful for everything that you have? Another would be peace. Another contentment. And when I say those things, I don't mean, you know, you have these things in your life when everything's going the way you want it to go, okay? I mean when your world is coming apart at the seams and you have a peace. How could you have a peace? Because you're walking with the creator of the universe. What would you, what would bother you? How would you, how would you care? What would you care? You're with him i got to give this illustration. When I was a kid, there was a bully in the neighborhood, and one day we, were, we, were, we had a big woods behind our house, acres and acres, and, and there was a lake back there, and it was frozen over in the winter, and we were back there skating. And so I'm back there skating, and some other people, and this bully comes along, and he's telling us, you know, get out of here, you guys aren't allowed to skate here, and he's just giving us a hard time. Well, then one of my friends showed up who didn't care about bullies, and he took that bully and slammed it down on the ice and said, go on home. And the guy went home, <laughs> okay? And... Uh, this same friend taught me later how to deal with bullies, okay? Because this, a different bully, when I was in junior high school, I'd put my lunch in the locker if I could get it to the locker without this bully taking it. And my friend came with me one day, and he goes, why are you letting him do that? I'm like, he can whoop me. He goes, that doesn't matter. The thing that matters is he remembers you. And I'm like, okay. And so the next day I came in, he took my lunch, and I hit him as hard as I could in the face and knocked him on the ground and jumped on him, started beating him. Teacher came and separated us. 
never touch my lunch again. <laughs> never. Don't know why, but he didn't, okay? <laughs> but here's the thing. My friend, his name was Kim. My friend Kim, when I was with him, I felt a lot more confident because he was, he was a bad dude, okay? Nobody, he was like corn pop, all right? He was a bad dude. <laughs> Some of you will get that. <laughs> Nobody messed with him. So when I was with Kim, I felt more confident and we could do more things, all right? Well, can you imagine? You're walking with God. You can do, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. And that's the thing, people. You know, we're in the midst of a situation that can be terrifying what's going on in our country right now. People are losing their jobs because they won't get a vaccine. They're afraid to get the vaccine. There's all kinds of nonsense going on. But if you're walking in fellowship with the God of the universe, he's in control. He loves me. I'm convinced of that because he sent his son to die for me. So I know he loves me. And if he loves me and he's all-powerful, that combination right there, what do you care about anything else? What do you care? Walking with the sovereign God of the universe. And let's keep in mind that when Enoch walked with God, he was walking in dark times. All right, Genesis 6-5 says, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. People... Please mark this verse. Please notice what this is saying. This is God's view of humanity. God looks down and he goes, these are some great people. They're just so kind, so generous. No, it says he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that watch, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, people always are challenging me on my view that Satan was destroyed in 87. They're like, how come men are so evil? Read this verse. Read this verse. We don't need Satan to be evil, people. People are evil. And people are so evil, and then if you get in government, you really get to be evil. Okay? Because the combination of power and money makes even moderately evil people very evil. So, (laughs) all right? We're called to walk with God, each and every one of us that are believers. And people, i got to tell you, life is so much better when we walk through it with the God of the universe by our side. When Christians walk in fellowship with Yahweh, when they begin to express their Christianity through their lifestyle, the world cannot help but take notice. They just can't help. Back to our subject of Enoch on the second coming. Jude quotes Enoch. And he says, Enoch prophesied. Now, he's telling us here that Enoch was a prophet of Yahweh. This prophecy of Enoch, here's what's interesting, people. This is the first prophecy recorded in Scripture given by a man. Even though it's not recorded until here in Jude, the end of the New Testament. There's a prophecy in Genesis, chapter 3.15, We call that the Proto-Evangelum, the first gospel, because it's the Bible's first prediction of a Savior. But that wasn't given by man. Yahweh spoke that one. So this is the first prophecy given through a man, and it concerns the second coming of the Lord Yeshua, a coming in judgment. Well, it just so happens that the very last prophecy given by a man is in Revelation 22.20, It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Yeshua. So the very first prophecy given by a man 
in the Bible is about the coming of Christ in judgment. The very last prophecy in the Bible given by man is about Christ coming in judgment. I think that's significant. I think it's important. Okay, so Enoch prophesied. Now, if Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that Enoch said this, then guess what? Enoch said it. Okay, if you believe in inspiration. Now, what I want you to do, I want to make a little distinction here. Notice that Jude doesn't say, the book of Enoch says. He doesn't say that. But he says, Enoch prophesied. Now, when we talk about the book of Enoch, we need to understand, let me, let's go for just a couple minutes and talk about this, because I don't think most Christians are even familiar with what this is. There's, under, there's literally three books of Enoch. Okay, they're numbered. One, two, three. Okay, that's how you know them apart. First Enoch is referred to as the Ethiopian Enoch. Second Enoch is called the Slavonic Enoch. And third Enoch is the Hebrew Enoch. They're all considered part of the pseudepigrapha. You familiar with that term? The pseudepigrapha writings are called intertestamental literature. They're called second temple literature. They are the books that are written by Jews between Malachi and the time of Yeshua, that 400-year period. The word pseudepigrapha literally means falsely ascribed writings. Now, that says something very negative to us that I don't think it's meant to say at all. It refers to a work that falsely claims to be written by a specific author, usually someone more ancient than the writer himself, and when in fact it is authored by someone else entirely. So while someone's claiming to write this or didn't write it, they're using a name, and we take that in a very negative way. I don't think it's meant to be that at all. Um, J.H. Charlesworth argues this. He says, rather than being spurious, the documents considered as belonging to the pseudepigrapha are works written in honor of and inspired by Old Testament heroes. So they're, you know, they're not trying to deceive people. That's not the purpose of the pseudepigrapha. Charles goes on, he said, The pseudepigrapha includes a large body of manuscripts from various locations and authors that were composed around the period from 200 B.C. to around 200. They are either Jewish or Christian in origin, and they are often attributed to ideal figures in Israel's past, and they usually claim to contain God's message, building upon ideas and narratives of the Old Testament. All right, uh, Nicholsburg goes on to say, though the canon of the Tanakh never included First Enoch. All right, and this is a big thing, you know, because these arguments have been going on for a long time. Should Enoch be part of Scripture? So the, the canon never included First Enoch. Its Watcher's giant storyline was quoted as spiritually authoritative in other significant Second Temple Jewish literature, such as the Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirah, the Genesis Apocryphon, Wisdom of Solomon, Philo of Alexander, Josephus, Second and Third Enoch, the Life of Adam and Eve, as well as some of the Targum. So the Book of Enoch, why this is important, is it provides very helpful information into Second Temple Judaism. These are the people who wrote the Bible. This is their background. This is their history. And when you understand this, it helps us better understand what they're saying. So the better we understand, I think, the literature of the Second Temple, the better we're going to understand the thinking of the Jews of that day. Very important. And as I said earlier, Jude doesn't say the book of Enoch says. 
He says, Enoch prophesied. Now, often in Scripture, the writers will say that a book says something. Uh, Moses quotes from the book of Wars of Yahweh. Joshua quotes from the book of Jasser. But Jude doesn't do that. He said, Enoch prophesied. So some say that this means he's not quoting from the book of Enoch, but from Enoch himself. How does Jude know about this prophecy? Did God just tell him? Hey, guess what Enoch said? Maybe, possibly, right? But I would tend to think that since much of Jude's material comes from the book of Enoch, that Jude got this prophecy from the book of Enoch. All right? And he's saying Enoch prophesied. Maybe Jude is saying that Enoch was the author of the book of Enoch. Now you say, well, how could that be? All right? I'm not saying that Enoch wrote it down, okay? But I think others took the oral tradition of what Enoch said, and they wrote it down. Here's something a lot of people don't understand. In this first century period, in the Second Temple Judaism period, they did not trust writings, okay? It was an oral tradition. They told stories. Things were orally passed down. A lot of things were not written down. They, they literally, the rabbis wrote about how be careful of anything that's written down. I mean, you know, that's so weird to us because we're the exact opposite. If it's written down, I trust it. If you say it, I'm like, you might have messed that up. You know, but they trusted the oral tradition. So there was an oral tradition, and what Enoch said was passed down through this oral tradition. Noah's family must have known about this, right? Because it survived the flood. Some believe Enoch, first Enoch, contains the actual words of Enoch and that it was handed down through the ages. I think that's a possibility. I think it's just through oral tradition. It just came down until somebody finally wrote down what Enoch said. Now, many argue that just because Jude uses this quote from Enoch doesn't mean he's endorsing the whole book as truth. And that's possible because there are cases where apostles quote a saying as a singular cultural reference without connecting from the rest of the source. So, the authors of Scripture often quote others without endorsing all they said. But the difference here is that Jude doesn't merely quote one verse from the book of Enoch. He also follows the content patterns of 1st Enoch, along with allusions, echoes of its phrases and language throughout the epistle. I think it's significant that Jude, he doesn't call Enoch Scripture. Grafe, he could have. He doesn't. Nor does he introduce the quote with, it is written, which, you know, is pretty typical the way to introduce Scripture. Jude just says Enoch prophesied. He was a prophet. Many of Yahweh's prophets wrote books or what they said is recorded in the Scripture. Maybe, just maybe, Enoch's prophecy was written down, and we find it in the book of First Enoch. And we can argue whether First Enoch should be in the canon or whether it shouldn't be in the canon until we're blue in the face, and we're not going to get anywhere on that. They've been arguing that. Forever. I, I, my personal opinion is not Scripture because it's not in the canon. God wanted it in there. I think it had been in there. But I think it's very helpful. And people, you know, just because something is not Scripture doesn't mean it's not helpful. Again, Jews quoting this. Peter quotes this. They were familiar with this. It must have had some significance on them. It formed their understanding. These are the writings of the period that the Bible, the New Testament came out of. So it's helpful for us to know the context, that's part of the larger context of the Bible. He says, and behold, he cometh, First Enoch says. But Jude says this, in quoting this, Jude says, 
prophesied also these did the seventh from Adam, Enoch, saying, Lo, the Lord did come in his saintly myriads. Now, I'm using Young's here because Young's does a good job with the tense. But the Lord came here in Jude is in the aorist active indicative. Not will come, future tense, but came, past tense. So the verb came is aorist tense, but it's in the context it describes an event that's yet future. But Jude's saying he came. This event, Christ's coming in judgment, in Jude here, is so certain that Jude describes it in the past tense. And the use of the ancient, or the aorist tense, is referred to as the proleptic, you heard that word before? Aorist. Okay? It's, that's what it's called. Daniel B. Wallace, in his Greek grammar Beyond the Basics, says this, The aorist indicative can be used to describe an event that is not yet passed, as though it were already completed. This usage is not at all common, though several exegetical significant texts involve possible proleptic aorists. All right? So that's, that's what he's talking about. This is, he's talking about it as if it already happened. So there's more on that proleptic. Now, he says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of His holy ones. The preposition with or among here presents the Lord coming as surrounded by a vast army of attendants. Who are these holy ones? Well, the word in the Greek is hagios, which refers to holy ones. And here are the references to heavenly beings. It's not believers. He's coming with the holy ones. And we know that Christ's second coming is accompanied by angels. Matthew says that, Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. He's coming with His angels. All right? That idea is repeated over and over in passages dealing with the second coming. Now, as I said many times, every time in the New Testament where it talks about Christ's coming, you have a time reference. You have some indication of when. The, he doesn't just throw it out there, and he never says, in a long time away, this is going to... No, it's always a near time statement. Near, quickly, shortly, some of you standing there, this generation. Always a time stamp, okay? It's going to happen soon. There's no, in, there's no time indicator here in Jude, unless we take his proleptic heiress as a sign that it would be soon. When did Enoch think the Lord would return? Well, I think he agreed with the Lord. I think he agreed with Barnabas. I think he agreed with all the New Testament writers. Let me show you that. Let's look at that text again in Enoch. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the elect and righteous who will be living in the day of tribulation. Okay, this is a day of tribulation. Does that ring a bell to anybody? The t- time of the tribulation? You know, that's a significant thing. Now look, it's a tribulation when all the wicked and godless are to be removed. When's that supposed to happen? Well, it happens at the second coming, according to Matthew. Look at Matthew 13, 41 and 42. This is a reverse rapture. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them in the fiery furnace. Okay, that's what, let's back to Enoch, that's what he's saying. In the time of the tribulation, the wicked and the godless are going to be removed. And he took up his parable and he said, Enoch, a righteous man whose eyes were opened by God, saw the vision of the Holy One in the heavens, which the angels showed me. 
And from them I heard everything, and from them I understood as I saw, but not for this generation, but for a remote one. So what's Enoch saying? I'm not talking about, this is not for y'all. This is for a remote generation. I wonder what generation that is. He says, which is for to come. Now concerning the elect, I said, and took up my parable concerning them, the Holy Great One will come forth from his dwelling, and the eternal God will tread upon the earth, even on Mount Sinai, and appear from his camp, and appear in the strength of his might from the heaven of heavens. And all shall be smitten with fear, and the watchers will quake with great fear, and trembling shall seize them. At the time of this judgment that Enoch is talking about, the watchers are going to tremble. So it's a time of judgment for the watchers. Hmm. Keep that in mind, okay? Come back to that in a little bit here. And the, unto the ends of the earth. And the high mountains shall be shaken. Watch this language. The high hills shall be made low and shall melt like the wax before the flame. The earth shall be wholly rent asunder. That language sound familiar? And all that is upon the earth shall perish. And there shall be a judgment upon all men. But with the righteous he will make peace and will protect the elect. And mercy shall be upon them and they shall all belong to God. And they shall be prospered and they shall be blessed. And he will help them all and light shall appear unto them. And he will make peace with them. And behold, he cometh with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment and to destroy the ungodly. And then he goes on to quote, you know, this is what Jude says. Now, this text we just read, hopefully it's fresh in your mind, sounds very similar to what Matthew says in Matthew 24. Look at Matthew. Immediately after the tribulation, okay, we're talking about this tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars are going to fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven, what's that? That's the watchers, the stars refer to gods, the gods of heaven, the powers of heaven, they're going to be judged, this is in Matthew 24, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, that's judgment, with power and great glory, and will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now Enoch doesn't tell us when this will happen, but what he's talking about is the same exact judgment that Matthew talks about here, and Matthew does tell us when it will happen. Okay? Same exact judgment, using the same language, Matthew tells us when, so therefore we can connect that with Enoch and says, we know when. When is it going to happen? Truly I say to you, this generation. This is the one that Enoch said was a far away. Yeshua said, no, it's, it's right now. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I think this verse is devastating to a futuristic eschatology if you just let the words say what they're going to say. The word generation in this text here comes from the Greek word ganea. All right, Ganea, according to Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, it says Ganea means the whole multitude of men living at the same time. We understand that, right? Generation. Arndt and Gingrich, in their English-Greek lexicon of the New Testament, says 
Ganea as basically the sum total of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a time, contemporaries, all right? Now, if you look at the way Yeshua used the word generation, I think it's abundantly clear it always refers to his contemporaries. And no one argues that any of the other times it is used. This is the only time they want to argue that. Why? Because it doesn't fit their eschatology. It's the only reason. I think it's abundantly clear it always refers to contemporary. The Jewish people of that period... In etymology and usage, generation means those born at the same time. And a biblical thought of generation was 40 years. So Yeshua says, I'm saying to you, this generation, not that generation, this one, is not going to pass away until all these things take place. So Enoch taught the same thing about the second coming that Matthew taught. It happened in the first century. It was all to happen in that generation. Now, let me tie this in. Michael Heiser, in his latest podcast, he was answering, not the latest from yesterday, the latest from before that, okay? <laughs> I wrote this when the last one was the latest, okay? He's, he's done one since. But what, he's doing question and answer from the series he just did on Revelation. And someone asked a question about Matthew 24, 34. And so Heiser says this, if full preterism is the case, then Jesus has already returned. Yep. And like... I don't know when that happened. Well, why doesn't he know when it happened? Because it happened this generation. The Lord said when it was going to happen, so I don't know why he doesn't know that. All right? He told us when it would happen. All right. Heiser goes on to say about Matthew 24, 34. Now, I want you to... This is a direct quote, and I went back and listened to the audio. The transcript wasn't out yet, but I listened to the audio several times so I could try to get it exactly word for word because I don't want to misquote him. But he says, there is more ambiguity in the verse in this passage than meets the eye. What does that say? Okay, ambiguity is the quality of being open to more than one interpretation. When you say something, that's ambiguous. It means, who knows what it means, okay? could mean anything. So he's saying that this verse, speaking of this verse, is ambiguous. Who knows what it means? Well, I don't know what's ambiguous about it. I say to you, who's the you? It's the people he's talking to. This generation, what the generation he's talking to, will not pass away. We understand what pass away means until all these things take place. What are all the things? The things he just talked about in the last 33 verses. So I don't see, this is confusing to me. I don't get it. I don't know why. Heiser's saying there's many possible interpretations of this verse. I don't believe that. Heiser goes on then to quote, Craig Bloomberg, in his commentary on Matthew, and what he has to say about this, and Bloomberg says this, verse 34 does not imply that Christ will return within the lifetime of his hearers, or within some later period of 30 to 40 years during which all the signs occur. Rather, all these things in verse 34 must refer to all these things in verse 33. So what they're doing here is they're saying, well, verse 33 says, when you see all these things take place, know that it is near. And so they say, see, it's near. It hasn't happened. And so the, all these things, it, it's, oh, man. Let me go on here with him. He says, which show that Christ's return is near and which therefore cannot include Christ's return itself. 
all these things will then refer to everything described in 24, 1 through 26, but will not include the parousia itself. This is the division in Matthew 24 I never even imagined, okay? But what he is saying is the first 26 verses deal with the signs of the coming of Christ. And then he switches about come, talking about the parousia in verse 27, and that hasn't come yet. All right, well, let me throw this out here, okay? This is one of the verses that Bloomberg says all the things fit into this. Then there will be great tribulation, okay? Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. So this is a time of great tribulation. Then in verse 29, which he says this refers to future, but look at verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then he talks about the second coming. So it's immediately. But this is a separate time period. All right? The second coming was to happen immediately after the tribulation. Verse 33 says this. So also, when you see all these things, you know that, the, that he is near at the gates. And so, see, he's near. He's not how you're here yet, is their argument, basically. So all these things doesn't fit. But let me say this. When you start to see the signs, you know it's near. There's a parallel passage in Luke, basically says the same thing. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know the kingdom of God is near, right? Okay. Now, we know from other verses that the kingdom of God had already come in some sense, okay? Because Luke uh, 11.20 says, But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So if the kingdom of God came... How can it said to be near? Well, in Matthew 24, 33, Yeshua is referring to the full manifestation of the kingdom. When you start to see these signs start to happen, you know it's near. It's really near. Heiser goes on quoting Bloomberg, and he says this. Matthew 24, 34 demonstrates that everything necessary for Christ's return was accomplished within the first generation of Christianity. Okay, everything was accomplished so that every subsequent generation has been able to believe that Jesus could come back in their time. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. When I, you know, when I read this, I'm like, is something wrong with me? Are my eyes not, and my brain not working right? This is utter nonsense. And here's, here's the theory I have. When you can't prove a point, just baffle them with Stuff they don't even know what you're saying, okay? And, you, you know, they'll be so confused. They're like, I don't know what he said, but it must make sense, okay? This guy's a scholar. I mean, what in the world, you know? So in Matthew 34, everything was fulfilled just so he could come whenever he wants. So, but the problem is the coming is part of that passage. You can't rip it out of there. You can't use, oh, it's near, so it's not here. But the, it's immediately after the tribulation of those days. All these things shall take place. All these things were going to occur in that generation. And all these things will cover everything he has spoken of in the first 33 verses. He was talking about everything he'd been discussing from verse 5 through 29. That's their question. When will your coming be? This generation. This includes the second coming, a power and glory to destroy Jerusalem. What Yeshua meant 
by all those things happening in that generation, including the parousia, was that they would all happen while some of those folks he was preaching to were still alive, just as he said they would be. Christ lived in the last days. And at his second coming, the last days ended. It was the last days of the old covenant. And it ended in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. People, if we understand this, we will understand that we today are not living in the last days. And Heiser in that same audio said, we're in the last days. Of what, I wanted to ask him. Of what are we in the last days of? The world, Judea, what are we in the last days of? Yeah. And if we understand this, if we understand the last days are over, people, it could save us a bunch of anxiety as we listen to the constant drone of the prophecy preachers who continue to say the end is near. It's not near. And you know, we don't have to be fearful now when we hear these things. We can just laugh and say, you're wrong, you're off by 2,000 years. Okay? It's not our end that's being talked about. We don't need to worry about the mark of the beast. The last days ended in AD 70. The book of Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in AD 70. That's what the book's about. It's not about our future world. It's not about things that are going to happen. It's about them. He couldn't make it any clearer. He starts by saying these things are near, about soon to take place. And in the end, the last chapter, five times he said, I'm coming quickly, 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 quick. Just in case you people don't get this, I start it, I end it, everything in the middle. It's to the seven churches. It's not to the church in Chesapeake. It's to the seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. If, if the word of God means anything, if it is inspired, please, people, understand he wrote it to people. It had to mean something to them. And if it doesn't mean something to them, it means nothing to anybody. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. Father, I just pray you'd give us a heart of Bereans, Lord. May we search the scripture to see if these things are so. I'm not asking anybody to buy what I'm saying. I'm just asking us to search it out, to be Bereans. Why so much emphasis on the time of the coming being soon, being near, and yet 2,000 years later, Christians still await, still saying it's soon. Lord, give us an understanding mind. Help us to understand that Christianity is not an emotional thing. It's a logical thing. Help us to trust our mind, Lord, and what you have said, and may we have faith in your words. Amen.